Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is a word of God. You know, today we're going to start this new sermon series, and it'll last maybe a couple weeks. And we're going to talk about this idea of renewal. And the way we're going to go about talking about this idea of renewal is we're going to look at a certain period in the life of Israel from the Old Testament known as the post-exilic period. Now, I'm going to start off by giving a little bit, it's going to be a little bit lecturish, but uh, I'll get into the, the preaching portion. But I think this helps us understand a little bit of the Old Testament because I know for many of us, uh, as we read certain passages, especially the more obscure prophets, we may not exactly know what's going on and what they're addressing. So let me just give a quick overview. Uh, you know, the origin of the people of Israel, it's recorded in Genesis, and then you move on further, and the law of Israel, or the law of God is given to Israel through Moses after they are liberated from Egypt. And eventually what happens to these people is they go and they take the promised land, the land that God said he would give them. And as they were in that land, they longed for a king. Uh, they got King Saul, who wasn't the greatest king. But then after King Saul, you have King David. And under King David, you see the kingdom united and expanded. And finally, at King Solomon, uh, I guess that's kind of the climax of the kingdom of, of Israel, where they build this wonderful and this beautiful temple. So that's the pinnacle of the people of Israel. But after that, things begin to go south. After King Solomon, uh, the kingdom divides. You have, uh, you know, many bad kings interspersed with some good kings, but the kingdom is divided. And eventually, uh, Israel is taken over by a foreign nation. It's taken over by Babylon. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is the king of Babylon. And what he does is he goes into Jerusalem. 
He destroys the temple. He replaces the king of Judah with one of his own kings. And during this period, many Jews are killed. Uh, Some Jews actually remain in the land, but also many Jews are exiled to go into a foreign land. And this, this period of exile is known as the exilic period. Now, after that happens, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world. And so Persia begins to come in, and they overtake Babylon. And the reason why that's important is because King Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, he says to the Jews who have been exiled, you guys can come back now, right? You guys can come back to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild your temple. And he gives this decree. And this period where the Jews begin to come back and uh, come back to Jerusalem is known as the post-exilic period, and that's essentially the period that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And so there's books like, right, the prophets Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are prophets from that period, but you also have books like Ezra and Nehemiah and even including Esther that is that are from this post-exilic period. So we're going to look at these specific books as we talk about this topic of renewal. The reason why I want to look at this period is because I think it does show us something very important about God, and it shows us how God goes about renewing a people who have been spiritually dry for a very long time. Uh, When I use this term, spiritually dry, I know a lot of people think have different things or different ideas about what that means, but I'm partially borrowing the imagery that we get from the prophets. Uh, It's the image of wilderness, and God promises, he says, you guys uh, are living kind of an experience of uh, a wilderness. You're in the dry and and desert land, but I promise you one day that you will become a flourishing, lush garden. And to be spiritually dry, of course, it means, right, to be like a desert, which also means uh, there's not a lot of sense of life in the wilderness. There's not a lot of flourishing in the wilderness. But a a garden is, is something that has, is teeming with life and something that is for lack of a better word, flourishing, right? Now, uh, the question I want to ask is, why, why were they spiritually dry? And on the surface, we can have, we, there's a lot of reasons we, we could say. We could say, you know, they were spiritually dry because they were cast out from their land. Why were they cast out from their land? Well, it was a lot of unskilled leadership. It was maybe weak armies or something circumstantial led to them being exiled and to a place uh, that was spiritually dry. But I think what's interesting about the Bible is how the Bible diagnoses their problem. And it's not ultimately a circumstantial issue, but it's ultimately a spiritual issue. You see, the reason why their temple was destroyed, the reason why Babylon conquered them, the reason why they were exiled from their land in the first place is because they broke covenant with God. In other words, they were disobedient and they neglected God's word. They lived according to their own ways rather than living according to God's ways. And therefore, as a result, uh, kind of as, uh, uh, as a form of judgment, they were excluded from the blessings of God, and they were left in this spiritually dry place. And so during the time of exile, what they needed is renewal. This post-exilic period, it shows us God taking steps towards renewing now the people of Israel. As we think about Israel during this period, uh, I also want us to think about our own lives. Uh, I want us to think about our own spiritual health, both individually and communally. And individually, I think when we feel like we're spiritually dry, uh, we might be tempted to think and look towards circumstances in our lives to explain our spiritual condition. Uh, I think a lot of times we say, you know, the reason I'm not doing well spiritually is because, ah, my my job is just so stressful, or uh, life is just so busy, Uh, I have so many family obligations, 
Uh, sometimes we say, I, I just don't have enough sleep. Sometimes the pressures of the world are just too heavy. Or the problems of uh, my friends, my community, my family is what makes us dry. But here's what, what I think we should really consider. Uh, we should consider the fact that maybe uh, the reason we feel spiritually dry is that we are not prioritizing the right things in our lives. Perhaps it's because we're not really devoted to the Lord in our worship. Perhaps we're not really living in a kind of radical obedience to the Word of God. Perhaps we're living in our own ways and pursuing our own things and our own heart's desires and chasing this vision that has been given to us by our culture rather than chasing this vision that God gives us in his word. And if so, then the reason we probably feel spiritually dry has less to do with our circumstances and things going on in our lives and probably has more to do with the priorities of our hearts. But consider this too. You know, there's always a a communal element to spiritual health. And so most of the time, the Bible, uh, when it talks about, when it, its focus is usually on a community of people and not necessarily on the individual. And uh, I think our individual health is always going to be tied to the health of our community, maybe the, our wider society. And sociologists will say something similar, but they'll use it in different terms and they'll say it in a fancier way. But they'll say that uh, all people, all individuals are socially constructed which basically means that we are shaped and influenced by the people that we are around, by the culture that we live in. And therefore, it makes sense that when a community or a culture is doing well spiritually, then individually we benefit. But when a community is not doing well spiritually, then I think the individual is hindered. And that's why revival oftentimes happens in communities. And when it does happen, it tends to lift the faith of everybody. And conversely, when an entire community or an entire people are very apathetic and just living according to their own ways, it can quench the passion and the faith of the individual. And therefore, communities need renewal as well. I thought we'd kick off the series looking at a prophecy in Haggai. And Haggai is kind of like the harsher prophet giving rebuke. Zechariah is, I, I would say, the more encouraging prophet. But Uh, Haggai, he is prophesying during a time of great discouragement and resignation uh, for the people of Israel. Uh, The story goes like this. King Cyrus, he makes a decree. He says, exiles, you can come back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. But soon after, they run into some opposition. The people of the land, the inhabitants of the land, they, they try to frustrate their cause. They try to frustrate their building project by bribing government officials and making it incredibly difficult to continue on with rebuilding this temple. Now, you have to really try, try to put your shoes in, in someone of that time, into a Jewish person of that time. Uh, you know, personally, if uh, many of you probably know this, but I've lived in New Jersey most of my life, which means I consider New Jersey my home, uh, I guess wider, I consider this metropolitan New York area my home. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have some kind of foreign power just come in and say, you can no longer be here, right? You can no longer live here. This is no longer your home. You have to go live over there. Not only that, uh, after 70 years uh, of living in a foreign place, hearing somebody say, Finally, you can come back. I offer this decree. You're invited to come back to New Jersey. And uh, I imagine I would be very happy and say, finally, I can go home. And as I return home, life is not the same. The life that I remember is not the same. Uh, I am now in a position that's very vulnerable. I don't have much influence. I don't have much power. I don't have much money. 
And when I get back, initially I'm on cloud nine, but soon reality begins to hit. And I, at first I'm thinking about all those promises that I heard through the prophet Isaiah about how we are going to be a flourishing people again. So we build an altar, we gather, we worship, we sing praises to God, things are going well, and then you face some opposition. <laughs> you return to exile, and the people who are there saying, no, 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 you thought you could do this, but you can't do this. We're going to stop you. That's discouraging, right? That's really discouraging, especially if you uproot your entire family and you move to this place. So how would you respond in that kind of situation? Well, how, how did the people of Israel respond? And that's essentially what Haggai is addressing here. There are two ways in which they respond. Their first response is this. Uh, they're resigned. They respond with resignation. In verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, what they're saying is, you know, it's just too hard, and there are just too many obstacles to rebuild this temple, so it must not be the right time to do it. Now, I know some of us, we, we struggle with God's will, right? One of the most more difficult questions to answer in life is, is God closing this door for me, or does God just want me to persevere? Uh, but that's not exactly the struggle that they're facing here. God always wants his people to worship. And that's why rebuilding this temple is so important for the Jewish people. God always wants his people to worship. That would be like a modern-day church saying, well, you know, since people don't want us to worship and gather and worship and because they're making it difficult for us to worship, God must be closing that door for us and we shouldn't worship. But that's not the case, even with the modern-day church. You hear stories about churches all over the world, especially in persecuted countries, where they still gather even though it's against the law to gather as believers and they still worship even though they are persecuted for their worship. Uh, that's why you hear stories of some underground churches. Believers gather in like this secret apartment or secret home or secret place. And uh, as they're singing and worshiping to God, they're actually singing in whispers. So not to draw too much attention to themselves. But because the worship of God is that important to them. And I think that's, that's the same throughout all history. So even for these people uh, to say it must not be the right time to build this temple is tantamount to saying uh, it's not the right time to worship but it's always the right time to worship. And it may not seem like it, but what God says here in verse 2, it's, it's actually a pretty harsh word. And we know it's a harsh word because God says this. Uh, he doesn't say, my people say the time has not yet come. He says, these people say the time has not yet come. Now, why is that significant? What if you were talking about the company in which you work in, and uh, instead of saying, my company, you say something like this company? What effect does that have? Uh, well, essentially what you're doing is you're distance, distancing yourself from your company. Uh, or perhaps even worse and even stranger, what if a husband didn't say my wife? What if a husband said this wife? What does that do? It creates a relational distance. And when God is saying this, he's not saying my people, but he's saying this people. That's a harsh word because he's essentially saying they are a people who are distant from me. And it's almost as if he's disassociating himself from his people. Now, the question we want to ask is this. Why, why is his word so harsh to the people here? Doesn't he get their circumstances and doesn't he get their situation? I think his word is harsh to them because ultimately they lack faith. They don't trust God. They don't trust in his promises. And as a result, what they're doing is they are holding on to the wrong priorities. They have become so disillusioned with the circumstances of their lives and the circumstances in which to rebuild this temple that they simply just gave up. 
They probably said, you know, I just moved back here to Jerusalem. I got so many issues of my own. Right? I got to get my life in order and get my life together. And uh, rebuilding this temple is just going to require so much work and so much sacrifice. And what if I put all this work and effort into it and it doesn't amount to anything and people just end up stopping us or this temple gets destroyed again? Then what am I going to do? Look at my life and I'm going to say that was such a waste of time and such a waste of energy. And so they're saying this is probably not the right time. I don't want to put my devotion into it. I don't want to put my time, money, sacrifice into something that may not work out at the end. I think that's a common reaction that people in our culture would have all the time, especially our culture, because we live in a culture that cares a lot about the bottom line, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm sure many of you experience this at work, but for a brief time, uh, when I was saving up for uh, an engagement ring when Jen and I were dating and I was saving up for a wedding. Uh, I had a job and I worked in sales. And in this job, they had this big whiteboard on the board. And what they would do is they would put your name uh, on the board and they would actually put the number of the number of sales that you close, right? So sometimes for like a week or two weeks at a time, you just see like a zero next to your name and the pressure <laughs> begins to build. And uh, all people really care about is the bottom line. People don't really care about this, like how many hours you put into it, how much effort you put into it, how many phone calls you make, how many emails you send, how many people you meet, how many conversations you have. All of that effort, whether you are being faithful or not to that work, all people really care about in our culture is what? The bottom line. How many sales have you closed? And I think some of us, maybe we feel that way about spiritual things as well. Uh, I know I personally struggle with that when it comes to things in ministry. Maybe you feel like that when it comes to things like serving the church, things like evangelism, thing, even like things like prayer or reading scripture. And uh, maybe you don't feel like anything will be different if you do these things, and so eventually you just kind of give up. And I could say this, although God does care about the outcome, you also have to remember this, that God cares about the process. He cares about whether his people are trying to be faithful. He cares about whether his people are trying to persevere and that is why this rebuke is so harsh because they are making excuses for their unwillingness to even try they're saying you know the time is just not right but the reality is they just don't want to try anymore so what do they do instead and this is their second response they're not going to try they decide to focus on themselves Look at what verse 4 says. Is it a time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And then look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is an indictment on them. He's saying, all you guys care about is yourself. While this temple lies in ruins, all you care about is your own houses. They're more concerned with their own lives, their own comfort, their own security, their own well-being, rather than the things of God. And therefore, they prefer to build their own houses rather than rebuilding the house of God. And quite honestly, uh, this could probably be easily be an indictment on many of us as well, right? And so where does this lead? Uh, it leads ultimately to what verse 6 says that you have sown much and harvest is little. You eat, but, no, but you have, never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. 
And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Now, for these people, they were literally frustrated. Uh, in an agrarian society, they weren't producing as much as they expected. They weren't harvesting as much. But even so, the problem here, notice, isn't about the lack of food or the lack of clothes or the lack of drink. It's not as if they're starving. The problem is they never felt like they had enough. The problem is they were not satisfied. The problem is they worked hard, but they were still dissatisfied with their yield. They ate and drank, but they were still hungry and thirsty. It's like there was a hole in the bottom of their bag, and every time they tried to fill their bag, they found it to be empty. And you know what this reminds me of, this imagery? It actually reminds me of consumerism. Consumerism. We are a society and a culture built upon consumerism. The vitality of our economy, think about this, actually requires that we are never content or never satisfied because if we were, we wouldn't consume as much as we do. That's why it's important for companies, for example, like Apple and Samsung, to continue to come out with new phones each and every year. And I'm a slave to it as well. I'm, I'm like, when's the I iPhone 8 coming out, right? That's why it wasn't good when old refrigerators were built to last a long time because it meant that people would stop buying new refrigerators. Uh, you ever buy a refrigerator? The modern ones are not built very well and they break easily. I think it's kind of designed to be that way, so you keep buying more. You see, as, as long as we are not satisfied and as long as we are discontent, then somebody can sell us a story and tell us how much greater we'll be satisfied and how much more content we will be with a particular product and a particular service. But that story will ultimately be a lie, and we are going to be stuck in the same cycle of acquiring more things, ultimately eventually feeling dissatisfied, only to acquire more things. And it's this picture of trying to stuff our bags, but there's a hole in it. It never fills us. It never fills us. You know, the important question for us is this. What is ultimately going to fill us then? What is it that we think is going to warm us? What is going to quench our thirst? I think how we answer that question is going to greatly shape our priorities in life. But maybe we actually have to look at it in the reverse and see how do we prioritize our life? And what does that mean about how we answer that question? For those of you who have been in, uh, in the church for a while, you probably know what the answer is supposed to be. Uh, if somebody says, you know, what, are you supposed to be satisfied? You know the answer. You'll say, oh, of course, God is the one who is supposed to satisfy me and satisfy us. But I say again, look at your priorities. And do your priorities reflect that? Where does God's worship and God's word and God's work rank in the priorities of your life? Where does prayer rank in the daily priorities of your life? And you see, if these things rank low, then it could be a good indication that we are actually living in another story, an alternative narrative that says God can't ultimately satisfy you and therefore you have to find deep satisfaction somewhere else, whether it's in uh, fulfilling your dream career, whether it's in making X amount of money, whether it's in uh, a certain kind of relationship. We see, that's the lie of Satan. That's a lie, the same exact lie we see in the Garden of Eden, that God, you cannot be ultimately satisfied 
in having God himself, but you need something else. You need to eat this fruit, this forbidden fruit, in order to really be satisfied. So perhaps maybe the question for us is this. <coughs> How do we press on towards God and actually find our deep satisfaction in him? How do we do that? You know, one of the psalms that has helped me uh, answer this question is Psalm 73. I'm actually going to preach on this probably in a couple months, but Psalm 73, uh, if you've never read it, it's basically, it walks us through the struggle of a person named Asaph, and he is just very discontent with his life. He is deeply unsatisfied with his life, and eventually he, he begins to question the goodness of God. And the reason why he's not satisfied with his life is he's looking around at the world, and he sees uh, the wicked, and they are healthy, they're wealthy, and their lives look so good. Uh, the imagery there is like fatness is like basically coming out of their eyes, which is a symbol of wealth, right? If you're fat, it means you have access to a lot of food. So uh, he's saying, look at these people. They're so wealthy, and their lives are so good. Their lives seem so easy. easy. And yet I look at my life, what am I doing? All in vain have I kept my hands pure. He's dissatisfied. He's doubting the goodness of God. But then something amazing happens to this guy Asaph, and he has this complete and total transformation. And this transformation takes place after he enters into the sanctuary of God. After that moment, then he begins to have a moment of clarity. After that moment, he makes this conclusion. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Now what accounts for such transformation? I think this. He saw that God was good, not simply because God gave him material things, but he saw that God was good because he had something better in God. He had his presence. He had relationship. I think one of the key places that we experience deep satisfaction is when we make the worship of God an ultimate priority for us. Now, uh, I have to admit, it's very hard to convince somebody about that through explanation. Uh, it's probably very hard to convince ourselves of that. And I would say this, in some ways, you probably just have to be there and experience it. Uh, but isn't that the case with most things that are beautiful in life? I mean, the kind of beauty that floors us, the kind of beauty that really touches our heart in a profound and deep way. Think about the if you're a music person, think about the last song that really touched your heart and maybe even made you cry. Think about the last song that you heard that just lingered with you and made you feel something uh, so amazing. Try explaining that song to somebody and why it impacted your heart. You say, well, you know, the lyrics say this and the melody goes like this, but it's ultimately going to be inadequate until that person actually hears that song and experiences it for themselves, or better yet, experiences someone performing that song live. Think about, you, want, you go on vacation and you see something beautiful in nature, and you're just like, wow, the world is so beautiful. God is so good. And you get kind of impacted and touched by the beauty of things in this world. And you come back to the city and you go, oh, it was so amazing. Let me explain to you why it was so beautiful. Well, you know, the person that you're explaining to, they're not going to get it, right? Th there's a certain degree, I think, that they have to be there and experience it. I think most beautiful things in life are kind of like that, and we just have to be there 
and experience it. And it's just kind of hard to explain it or argue it or convince somebody of it. And so where does that ultimately leave us? I think it leaves us actually in a pretty good place because Jesus Christ came, and that makes all the difference in the world. You know what differentiates uh, the people of Israel and the author of Psalm 73, Asaph, differentiates people in the Old Testament from us, from people who live after Christ. We live in an era where God's grace and God's mercy and God's presence and God's wisdom and God's beauty is infinitely made more accessible and it's magnified for us. You see, these people, they lived in a period where they only knew it in shadow form. These people lived in a period where they actually needed a physical temple to get a taste of the very presence of God. We live in a period where Jesus Christ has come. And after his death, what do the gospel writers say? The temple curtain was torn in two, and the Spirit of God was unleashed to the rest of the world. We're actually in a pretty good place to be able to experience the beauty of God, the very presence of God, because we have Christ, and Christ sent his Spirit into the world, and now the Spirit dwells in this new temple, the church. The church. Think about it. As we gather together, we don't come to a physical building. We're worshiping in this dance studio. Yeah, sure. But the people of God, as we gather together, this dance studio is transformed into a kind of temple because the Spirit of God comes and dwells amongst us. That, that's good news for us, friends. That is great news for us. But you know what that also means? You know, the returning exiles said this, you know, now must not be the time to build. Now must not be the time of renewal. And of course, they were wrong. That was the time to rebuild. But at least they could say, well, we don't know the, the, the power of the Spirit. But we live in an era where God is actually renewing all things through the word of his gospel and through his Spirit. We live in an era where the harvest is plentiful, plentiful but the workers are few. We live in an era where the kingdom of God has actually come and Christ has taken his throne. Of all people, we are the last people who should say, now is not the time of renewal. It's precisely the opposite, friends. Now is the time of renewal because Christ has come, because he has sent his spirit. God tells the people of Israel through Haggai, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Perhaps that's something that we ought to do as well. Let us consider our ways, consider our priorities. Let's ask God to stir our hearts as he did the people of Israel that we might actually desire to obey his voice, that we might desire to worship him, to commune with him. Because I do think if these are things the people of God prioritize, renewal will come. God will bring renewal to his people, not just here to Good News Church, but uh, we need to pray for it for all churches in New York City. And as all churches prioritize the worship, the word, and the work of God, then guess what? God brings renewal to an entire city as well. Uh, we look at the pattern of how things are going in cities in particular, and we say, look at our young people and say, oh, 
more and more people are leaving the faith. Less and less peop- churches are on decline. Right? I think like 80-something percent of churches have either plateaued or are declining. And uh, we could very easily be discouraged by that and say, no, this is not the time to build anymore. But you see, we'd make the mistake that the people here made. When in reality, God is saying, no, now is the time. This is the time for renewal. This is the time for worship. This is the time for sacrifice. This is the time to invest our entire beings, our entire selves into the very work of God because he promises, he yearns, he desires to turn wilderness into a lush garden and we can be confident in those promises because he's given us Christ who has sent the Spirit of God upon all nations. Let's pray together.